1: Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.
2: We live in the age of the internet and that there's communities everywhere for everything. And that doesn't mean that they're all good, but it means that if you keep looking, you can find your niche and find the cool and interesting people that you want to interact with.
0: Welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast, the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop RPG arena. My name is Jeremy Gage, and I am learning about tabletop game design and publishing. If you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings, stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to listen to this episode of Draw Your Dice. I'm still working on the intro. It will come. But today's guest that I have has brought with him a very amazing game that focuses really on on some good character development stuff. So I look forward to to unpacking that. They have also he has also been previously interviewed on Thoughtly for some blog article interview goodness and also on the Yes Indeed podcast. I'd like to welcome Eli to the
2: show. <sighs> Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here and chat with you today. Eli, as I start off all of these, would
0: you just give a brief introduction to how you choose to present yourself to the world for the folks at home who may not know you?
2: Absolutely. My name is Eli Sites. All of my game work and social media is all branded Eli Sites S E I T Z and my pronouns are he him and I'm working in the I guess kind of story-gamey side of Indie role playing games and just making cool stuff as it's still very in the hobbyist angle of it, but it's a lot of fun. Amazing. The other thing I like to do to sort of
0: slightly break the ice, but also (laughs) to get people to know really a more intimate side of you, what was sort of, you know, before we get into the meat of this, what was sort of the maybe first tabletop role-playing game experience you've had and what sort of caused you to go into wanting to design design a game or homebrew or hack or whatever have you?
2: Yeah, yeah. I've kind of run the whole gambit. I started over 10 years ago in middle school playing D&D that it was, being a whole table full of kids playing D&D and I played D&D for a number of years. I got Dungeon Magazine. I played the 1 to 20. Like I actually did it. It took us a year and a half. But at a certain point it stopped being as satisfying and then I moved into Power by the Apocalypse and played Apocalypse World and Monster Hearts and moved more into the indie side and that really expanded my mind about what tabletop games could be and what kind of storytelling exists and is out there. And I didn't, despite having played games for so long, I never designed anything or thought about designing until summer, not this past summer, but the summer before. So about two years ago, there was a game jam on itch.io That was called the Libra Baskerville Jam, which was run by Jared Sinclair or at Infinite on Twitter. And he ran this game jam that was, you're going to open your word processor and set your typeface to Libra Baskerville and you're just going to type and you're going to keep typing. And it's okay if you take a break and step away, but you're just going to keep typing until it's done and then you're going to post it to this game jam and you're not going to edit And you're not going to touch your backspace button at all. You're just going to, except for correcting maybe typos, but you're just going to type and it's just going to be thoughts on a page. And for me as someone who was getting more and more interested in the design space, but it always felt so intimidating. And this idea of just, you're going to do, everyone's just going to put their thoughts out and we're going to release it was, felt like an approachable way to do it. And at the time I was unemployed And wrote a game that was just, here's all of my feelings about being unemployed and applying for jobs and waiting for the one email that's like, you have an interview, or we have an offer or something. And so I just poured all those feelings about waiting for one email. And it turned into this game called One Email that's on my itch that was just like, here's my feelings and my thoughts on it in game form that was more of a... You probably call it a lyric game of the kind of thing that you could play, or you could just read it and think about what it feels like to play, and that's the experience of the game. But that was my introduction to game design.
0: That I think that's very cool. So you've been essentially game designing for two years now, is what what we're gathering here? Yes. Yeah. About that. About that. So in a short amount of time i believe if i if i remember correctly looking on your itch you have about 8 or so games if that's correct yeah, something around that yeah. region of
2: um, of a of a couple different sizes and some of them are also following the style of jared sinclair some little zines that are more like thought pieces mm-hmm. of just kind of role playing philosophy or ideas about role playing that i have mm. That I put out Um, as mini-scenes. And I find it interesting that that's sort
0: of the first course you took to starting to put pieces out to consumers. Because I think a lot of times game designers, when they first start, I know that I've fallen into this trap. They think they have to make a 300-page triple book Mm -hmm. like for it to be a game or to be... Um, valuable to both you and whoever is interested in it, right? Mm-hmm. And I had a previous guest on here, Max, and they one of the things they said they loved about itch and the jam sort of circuit of that environment is that a lot of people just put ideas out on their pages rather than full games or at least that's what mm-hmm. that's what Max mm-hmm. looks for on itch. And I think it's really important to point out to people who may be listening, especially for myself, that you can put out a 10-page, non-edited piece of work, right? I think what I want to stress here is the word work. Um, Yeah, yeah. Because ideas, while full games can be valuable to a game designer or to a consumer who wants them strictly for entertainment purposes, ideas are also sort of the academic tool of anyone else who's looking to participate in game design, right? You can be mm-hmm. like, okay, while well, this mm-hmm. game's not finished. I see some of the things that it's doing. Let me see if I can take that and what ideas I can spawn off of, right? I think it's this really cool percolation of, of, of this percolation effect between designers, even if you don't personally know them or not, just to know that that stuff is out there.
2: Absolutely, yeah. It's that really, at its, at its best, it's the community aspect that... Mm-hmm we're going to come together and we're going to shove all these ideas together and then we can you start bouncing off of other things that you you go to a jam page like the second game i designed was for the hot horror jam and it was i forget who who ran it but that it was this idea of where it's like define those words of hot horror jam however you want and make a game out of it and that I made a game that was a a two-player game based on like an old murder ballad. Mm. And that just like, we're gonna... And that's that game specifically kind of helped me craft a little bit of my ethos around game design, which is just that I'm interested for me designing about the experience of playing that game at the table and really kind of trying to curate a specific experience that... I almost joke in my mind that I'm designing the walking simulators of <laughs> RPGs <laughs> that that like if you're going to play my game you're coming here and there's kind of an experience set out in it. It's it's a bit of a sandbox but there's also things there that story beats you're going to hit because I've written them into the game of these story beats just kind of come around and that's part of the experience of playing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that's a perfect segue into getting to talk about our game, The Last Place on Earth. So how about we start with, what was sort of the kernel idea for this game? Like, why why make this game?
2: Yeah, yeah, I was... So I was... I released this game for Quest 2 in 2020, and it was that the point of my design kind of career time in the hobby where I was thinking I've released these couple small things on itch, but I'm really interested in trying to make something a little bit bigger that the inclusion of Kickstarter and having it be more of a paid project. That's going to generate some money is that it means that I can pay other people to make cool things to go with the game because I'm not a visual artist, but I find that work really compelling and I feel like it can bring a whole lot to the game. And so I was thinking, I want something bigger. I'm looking for something that will also include visual art in it. And I really love the outdoors and this idea of like a man versus nature or exploration. And I originally started by thinking about like climbing mountains or like mountain climbing or glaciers. And then I had the idea of like, well, maybe I could do something historical with that. And Turns out the first ascents of basically every mountain in the world are all really problematic because there have been people going up that mountain for a long, long time and the person whose name is on the pin at the top is not any of the people who have been going up that mountain for a long, long time. Mm-hmm. And so I started kind of looking around. and was like, well, I don't really want to do a mountain because like, Denali is super fraught because of the indigenous tribes there, or you look at Everest and Tenzing Norgay, and the like bad ways that Edmund Hillary treated him and the other people in Nepal in that area. And then eventually I arrived at the South Pole and it was, here's the place where it's just the explorers and they're out here doing their thing and they're bad at it. <laughs> like um. they're not great. They think they're great. and like they have some really scientific things for their justifications but when we really look at them those scientific things do not make sense and i was like this is the story that i want to tell this is really interesting and then i made the game
0: yeah wow and all that i think thematically comes through for just just before we we dive in a little little get a little bit more bite on this would you give up because you're the game designer you'll do it way better than i will (laughs) Mm -hmm. would you give a brief introduction of what the game the last place on earth is about and sort of how you play it
2: absolutely so the last place on earth is a game about going to the south pole and that it is we are in 19 starting in 1910 going to 1912 and you are the Terra Nova expedition, which is the expedition from Britain, who are racing to the South Pole, and you are actually racing the Norwegians to the South Pole, and you are filled with confidence, you are the cream of the crop of British explorers, and you're going there with your great leader, who is the standard for Robert F. Scott, and you're racing to the South Pole, and spoilers for this expedition that happened 110 years ago, that expedition does not beat the Norwegians. The Norwegians win the race to the South Pole, and that expedition actually all dies on the way back from the South Pole. And that's the story arc that the game takes you through. It's based on games like Fall of Magic by Ross Kauman and other games like Monsignor or which Le to Liz's Farm, which is about, all of these are about journeys and they tend to have set prompts that help you set scenes. And it's very much the in-between a role-playing game and a LARP where you're going to set a scene and then you're just going to see where that scene goes. And it's pretty open. And once that scene is done, we'll move on to the next scene and look at the next prompt and figure out where we're going. Mm.
0: Yeah, I think, who was I talking about? It might have also been Max, but... We talked about how for both of us, a lot of the games that really attract us are ones that sort of have set goals in place. Like there's already, you know, on the more, what do I call it? semi-mainstream of Band of Blades being a Blades in the Dark rip, but the objective of Band of Blades is to get to Skydagger Keep. Like, that's it. And there's a a sort of predetermined setting of paths, and you could obviously homebrew your own stuff or whatever, (laughs) but the objective of the game is to get to Skydagger Keep and then fortify against the Cinder King. And there's something really unifying about that experience because what I compare it to is sort of the... D D trope of that no story survives the player's first move in the world <laughs> and i feel like that's always mainly because through the oral tradition of teaching the game that you're supposed to make all of the players goals matter but when you let five people make separate goals and then you as the dm have to try to wrangle all of that into one <laughs> thing can be difficult and often not successful because sometimes those things are so desperate or disparate from each other that it's just not feasible. So I love yeah, yeah. that this game tells a specific type of story. And like you were talking about in your philosophy of game design is that it creates a very atmospheric experience right from the get go. Like before you even think about characters, you are already in like I, we had Dearest Slattery on here And she talked about how a philosophy of hers is when does play begin? Does it begin when you actually play the game at the table? Or does it begin when you start reading the game? And I think that Mm, mm -hmm. your game has this feeling of you're already playing once you start reading, I think. At least in my opinion. I think that you start playing (laughs) the game once you start, when you start analyzing the different scenes, the locations, when you're thinking about, okay, if I'm... If I'm playing the GM version, the great leader, how am I interpreting all, like, we know what the end result's going to be, how do we examine that journey with these characters, and these are sort of my tools to, to do that with. So I think it, it nails an experience right on the head, for sure.
2: Yeah, yeah.
0: Was there so, sort of a focus on, like, when you were designing this game, was there a focus on character development? because that's what i feel from it i feel like Mm -hmm. this whole game is about character development if i'm if i'm incorrect in that assumption feel free to correct me but (laughs) it it, was was that sort of a a design goal for you in in making this one
2: yeah yeah i think and so the the purpose of the game is not to invoke bleed and there are Mm -hmm. a number of things in it that help kind of remove it from that the fact that it's historical and not modern Mm -hmm. and the fact that none of us are British explorers is I feel as though the likelihood of a very intense bleed experience with this game is fairly low that was not my intention Mm -hmm. but in a lot of ways feeling the experience through the character is and it is the intent of the game and that it really is when you talk about his character development the character the story is told through the character's development in that they, they arrive at this place and they have these ideals and they hold these. One of the things you define in character creation is the character's responsibility. That we're, we are men, we're British explorers, typically of the upper crust. We have these responsibilities that we must accomplish. And those responsibilities are very clear at the beginning. And the further you go, the responsibilities become less clear. And the beliefs that you held at the beginning are get challenged and may not be true by the end in that you may choose to do things that would have been unthinkable to your character at the beginning of the expedition. And that I think that that's one of the pieces that I really like to explore. My work is trying to build that character and really fill in all the nooks and crannies and figure out who is this person and what are the choices that they would make and what's going on with them and trying to put you in scenarios where you when you roleplay you're presented with difficult choices but you know your character enough that you can instantly just say this is what they would do that the the sledge is falling off the ice and it's a dangerous like rescue to grab it but they're the kind of person that would run and grab it or they're the kind of person who would be unwilling to take that risk.
0: I love uh, a sense of crisis in any game, especially when you talk about a consideration of, of stakes. There is this narrative philosophy called the story grid that I really like, where it, it says all, all versions, no matter how macro or micro you get in a story, have five kind of essential elements. The inciting incident, progressive complications, crisis, climax, and um, resolution. And one of the things that really changed my GMing style and sort of also my my current game design approach is the thought of the crisis part where mm. you offer basically uh, a choice between two things and you cannot in any way, shape, or form have both of those things. Your character has to decide one or the other they don't get to eat their cake make their cake and eat it too right so i love because i think what that does when you have to answer that question as a player is you decide on a truth right i think that that what happens is that you decide on a truth and when you're given an option that lets you have both answers you don't really you can you can pick a different truth later like your truth can change <laughs> but when you're stuck between losing something and gaining something you you don't get to change that about yourself or if you do figure out a way to change it or want to change it that's another crisis point that's another like you're you're reestablishing uh, a different truth that that crosses out the previous truth so i love when i was looking through some of the prompts for some of the scene locations Uh, especially the ones that get closer to the I'm going to forget the name. I think it is like near like near the summit of the South Pole or near the central Mm -hmm. end point of it. And then you start to make your trek back. Those prompts are like, you know, you lose something. What is it? Right. Or what what do you have to do to will yourself forward? And I think those are just very beautiful character moments that. Maybe we don't see in a often enough in a casual maybe D and D game or something like that. I know the game's very yeah, much about yeah. combat and stuff, but the only hit point that matters is one and zero, so the other seventy-nine <laughs> are not important. <laughs> so I also see that you have sort of like a journaling solo option here. We were sort of talking about this off air, but Did the solo version sort of come out of process of the game? Was it something that you tacked on at the end? Or was it like a design goal that you had in mind when you started making it?
2: Yeah, yeah. I I started with the group version, with the Mm -hmm. version where everyone is playing members of the expedition, looking up to the great leader, where the great leader is, is not played by anyone and is kind of a rotating role. But... While designing it, I was thinking about and interacting with the primary material from the expedition, because while the expedition, while Robert F. Scott and the five other people that were on that expedition that left the base camp, that they died, but their bodies were recovered. And because it's the Antarctic, all everything was preserved. And so we, we still have Robert F. Scott's physical journal, and that's mm. in a museum in England, but it's been transcribed and it's on the internet and you can read it. And I was reading it to help like generate the setting and the prompts that were coming out of it. And that reading that journal was what if there's a solo game in here that's about journaling and it is chain flips it on its head that instead of playing the ex- members of the expedition, you're going to play the leader of the expedition. And instead of having res- other responsibilities say to your family or to science, the men on the expedition are your responsibility. And when you lose them or when bad things happen, that that reflects on you and kind of your honor in this world. And a lot of the structure of the game draws off of the excellent plot armor by Orion Black or DC on Twitter, and that they're set up for a solo game based on journaling and prompts, that it I adapted some of those pieces with the prompts that I already had, and it made this, it creates this solo experience that is different from the base game, from the group game, but still brings those elements and still develops that character of figuring out who is the great leader and what is important to him, and Mm. how does he deal with what will probably be the loss, unless you have a 1 in 100 run where you just roll... Very, very well through the end of the game.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it, it's interesting. It's almost like you get two games for the price of one between these two modes, which is really, really cool. Also, shout out to ryan black i I've been following Ryan for like four years or something now at this point in my in my game design interest, so i'm I'm really happy that that you mentioned mentioned them yeah they're they're an inspiration. I, and I'm glad that you mentioned the journal because I was going to ask you if there were any touchstones that sort of drove your drove your design inspiration. And the last thing I want to touch on on what you said is earlier, a little bit before you mentioned the there wasn't much intentionality for Bleed. For anyone that doesn't know that maybe listening to this episode is their first episode, we talk about Bleed slightly with Adira, but Bleed is essentially... The separation between you of the, you as the player and your character, and how close those emotions or um, experiences mesh together or are translated through one another, and I think it's almost interesting because in the group version, I agree. I don't think there's a terror. Like I think setting it historically is a big separator from having that sort of bleed. But there's almost this interesting turn that happens and you take the journaling route on it i think of this audio drama that i listened to called the white vault it's like a horror Mm -hmm. uh horror slightly fantasy maybe alternate alternate modern history of these five explorers that go to an icelandic region in the north and they're haunted by this monster or whatever but the way they tell the story is both in conversations between each of them but Uh, They also have personal journals or audio recordings that they use to kind of describe the story as well. And for Mm -hmm. me, when listening to that, those journal portions of, of dialogue, it's almost as it almost feels way more intimate than like when two Mm. characters are talking, it feels like I'm watching a play. But when this person is journaling, I'm like inside, like I'm literally inside this character feeling everything they're feeling. So I think there's almost this interesting flip that happens or that I'm seeing that when you play the solo version, there's definitely, or I could see that there is a potential for a
2: higher amount of bleed between you and the great leader. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also really interesting Interrogating that and also the historical perspectives, because when you read the Robert F. Scott's journal, so much of it is incredibly dry, put a bold face forward, don't talk about any of the hardships that when we in the modern day think about journaling, it's about these are your innermost thoughts that you put down for yourself to help you process. And for him, at the time, it was, this is a record that will be found and used. And so when you read the entries for different days, because he journals every single day, and it basically all the journal entries are, most of them are, well, it was, this is the temperature, this is the wind speed, it's coming from this direction, we traveled eight days, dinner was good. <laughs> and like, that's kind of it. Mm-hmm. And, but the, there's so much of his psyche that you can learn from the things that he puts in his journal and kind of the the faces that he puts on and especially when you get towards the end when things start breaking mm-hmm. and that kind of one of the, for the historical exhibition, one of the death knells for it is one of the members has a bad fall coming down, the gla- coming down the Beardmore Glacier, which probably leads to some kind of concussion or head injury, which probably leads to internal bleeding. And that member eventually like, was one of their strongest for pulling the sledge. Mm-hmm. and that that member dies along the way down and that they don't have that extra strength to pull and that you could really tell that he starts breaking down of just like this is awful luck i can't believe this is happening and by the end it's he know i mean he knows that they're not going to make it they've been mm-hmm. stranded in a tent for two or three weeks while there's a blizzard outside and already you've had one member of the expedition who said I'm just going to go outside to do something. And the Robert F. Scott knows that that person is going outside to wander off into the snow to be not as much of a burden on the expedition because they're honorable British people who think that that's the right thing to do. Ooh. And so you can see the emotions coming through, but the way that they present themselves through the lens of the time period and his conceptions of needing to be the strong man and needing to do this for England and the king is really quite something.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, heavy stuff for sure. Like just to watch sort of the, the hit, the hope sort of slip from a person over the course of many days through the writing, seeing this strong, like, you just need to know the information because we'll be back in a week or, you know, whatever was the mentality <laughs> there and then, wow. I I, I think, we talked off air about an, ex- an experience I was reminded of. A friend of mine was shadowing a, a captain out in some ocean waters and he told me a very harrowing story where he potentially almost lost his life out in open ocean water and this story brings you to that so I think that I don't know. Just there's really awesome. What is it called? Like a like a survival story, but I think it's it's something more than that. I can't remember. I'll I'll, I'll put like an addendum in the show notes if it comes
2: to me. It'll be, it'll be my wake up at one a.m. and add a detail. Yeah. But um, I mean, there, there's there's so much of the survival and the emotion put in it. But mm-hmm. the flip side of it is is that they didn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. No one mm-hmm. needs. To go to the South Pole. (laughs) England doesn't need to be the first people to go to the South Pole. And the Norwegians are also going to the South Pole, and they do it far faster and far safer than the English do it. That they just, the English are not caught up in their own self righteous importance that holds them back. Mm. They're, they're going and they're not wearing furs because furs are barbaric. Oh, my God. And they're, they, they, they didn't bring dogs because in their previous tests with dogs, the dogs ran faster than the men could travel because the British weren't good at cross-country skiing. So to slow the dogs down, they just weighed the sledges down more. Which meant that the dogs had to work harder, but they didn't feed the dogs very well, so the dogs all died. So they thought dogs were a bad idea, so they didn't bring dogs. Frey, when not able to visually see my face, I am appalled. (laughs) (laughs) And they did. And instead of dogs, they brought they brought ponies because that (laughs) ponies are good at pulling things. But also, there's nothing that grows to feed ponies. In the Antarctic mm-hmm. so you have to bring tons of hay to feed your ponies and it just there's all of these stories that punctuate the whole record like they had a pony expert who was going to be the one who was going to go on the expedition but the pony expert wasn't present when they bought the ponies that they were going to bring on the expedition and Robert F. Scott for some reason thought that the white ponies were better so they bought all white ponies it turns out that's not how horses work.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Fun fact, everyone: color does Fun not facts. denote ability, no. which also has deeper meanings. Eli, this is this is a great game, and I think this is a really good exam. Like for anyone who wants to look at it as a case study, I think that you can learn a lot about. Uh, for for me looking at something very specific like this historic tale and delineating it into an experience at the table one is craftsmanship i don't i don't know if i right now could do that and make a successful game like take a historical moment and make a game out of it and i feel like you do it a lot of justice as well like all the hardship and feeling and sort of camaraderie between explorers is is teeming inside of this for sure thank you and i urge anyone to go and pick this up as a great look for character development a great look for you know like i said delineating a moment in history or delineating a moment period it doesn't necessarily have to be history but maybe you know there are games about people sitting around the campfire and kind of uh, delineating that experience right so um this sort of breaks up before we talk about some of your future projects you got going on. Mm -hmm. This is sort of my trends lightning round section for you. What have you been seeing repeatedly, maybe on your own spheres of influence or on Twitter or something like that about some design trends that you are happy to see? or maybe some design trends that you wish would go away, or <laughs> even some personal trend belief that you would, that, you know, you kind of want to speak out, or what is it called? Speak into existence, yeah. or yeah. that you feel like should should go away. I'm cool with both the positive and the negative. I think it's important for people who develop their tastes to know what they do and do not like, right? So yeah. what, what are those yeah. sort
2: of things for you? I think something that's been really interesting this year looking at the commercial side of independent role-playing games so like the independent role-playing games but the ones that went to kickstarter or published and have done really really well is that the thinking about them in beyond the system and beyond the mechanics and beyond the game and thinking about them as a product and a thing to be consumed i think is really interesting Mm -hmm. in that In like the 2010s, early 20s is when we start getting the, you can just make a game and put it out as a PDF. And that's a revolution. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the revolution that we're at now is you can make a game and put it out as a PDF and also pay that really cool person, friend over there to do some art for it and make it something that's really special and putting that together. So I'm thinking about like Monster Care Squad or Mm -hmm. Wander Home, which were both gangbuster successes on Kickstarter that really were thinking about the art and the product that was coming out of it. Or the Mork board did incredibly well at the at the Ennies this year. Or Thousand Year Vampire, which also thinks about itself as a product. And I know that I'm blanking on that creator's name, but that he really th- put a lot of thought into like, the paper that we're going to use and the cover design. And then I think that Not that everyone needs to release a 120-page art book as much as I would love to buy them all and put them on my coffee table, Mm -hmm. but I think that there is something to be said for thinking about your game and the way that people interact with your game, and that for us in the indie space, it's harder to get them to the table. As much as I'd love everyone's game to be played, they're not all going to be played if we think about play as being five people at a table with dice. Mm-hmm. But if your game is played every time it's read and people look at the pictures and they think about your words, then the games get played a lot more often. And think about mm-hmm. how you can help people play your game like that. Because as much as I'm an advocate of people putting out their things with like the Libra Basketball Jam, if it's laid out and if it has some pictures it's that much more likely to get printed out and read. Or if it's a zine and people can hold the thing in your hands and read it, and if reading it is that form of play, then it'll happen when you put the effort into it. And I think that's a thing that us in the indie space should look to and build those partnerships with artists and people doing cool things both because it makes cooler products that get played more often, but also I think it's where we've seen the commercial success is really coming in that Monster Care Squad and Wonder Home didn't have a lot of art piece, a whole whole lot of art pieces in their campaigns, but the ones they had were very evocative and they promised a lot more. And I think that if you're looking to really make the money, I feel like that's kind of where the money is as well. I mean, you look at Tyler's Beak, Feather, and Bone, And it stands on the back of those drawings, which appeared in the Kickstarter campaign of, here's the game, it's written, the art's here, you can get this cool art right now.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's a really, really good point. I think that, you know, for me personally, as a designer, I've spoken to a couple other people. So we actually had a guest on here previously, his name is Aaron Lim shout out to Malaysia and any fans who are listening from his show, but he talks about that he would like to see crappier games, like crappier looking games hit
1: people's Mm -hmm.
0: fronts. And the, and the reason he, he says that is that some designers, me included, get really hung up about getting art in their book and like hiring people for art. Right. But I also Just had a conversation yesterday with Benjamin Sperduto, who made his game The Revenant, and also Hounds of the Tsar. Both of those books are made entirely with public domain photography, but they ooze with atmosphere and theme. Like, mm-hmm, The Revenant mm-hmm. is another perfect example of a game that you are playing when you read it. Like, you're making a character as you're reading all the character creation po- prompts. You're thinking about your target. Um, the, the game is, is about that you play a vengeful spirit who is out to, you know, exact vengeance. It's it's <laughs> like his favorite touchpoint for it was The Crow, the movie The Crow. And then mm-hmm. uh, I also attribute to like movies like The Grudge or Sh- Shudder. It's it's about a, a photographer who has a spirit following him. But the reason I bring up both of those examples is that uh, I agree with you. I agree that if you think about a game solely as a product of play at the table, it may not do as well commercially If you're, or it may not be as I don't want to say do as well, but be as versatile as a product that takes into consideration thematic and art direction and proposes those things to the reader, because then it's also being, it's also an enjoyable book to read slash play in, right? As as a solo consumption, I think that's why a lot of people get the multitude of monster manuals that D and D makes because (laughs) the art helps them construct a way to present ideas of adversarial combat to the players because they have a a reference to use right yeah so i I think that's a really good thing to point out for people is that uh, and what i'm also kind of attributing to is that there's a sliding scale if this is your very first game that you're sort of working on as you're listening to these episodes you don't need art because we talked about how there's also the format of ideas that just hit the page and that people are itch games coming out there but if you're going to make this a business and part of the reason I make this show is to also talk about the business of game design you have to take into consideration what might give you the best versatility for success or what is it luck is when you're ready for opportunity right so Mm -hmm. taking all those steps to be versatile can help maybe better establish a uh swell of success potentially
2: yeah yeah and i think that point about a sliding scale really matters like i'm not Mm -hmm. in my own work attempting anything at the level of wander home or monster care squad and the i actually i've released two zine quest projects last year and that one of them was a single-page zine that is one page of printer paper that is folded into an eight-page little booklet. And that I commissioned some art for that, but those commissions were $50 a piece, an illustration. Like, mm-hmm. it does not have to be expensive. And when you do it through kick, part of the reason I did it through Kickstarter was so I could get the money to, make, to pay the artist, because I didn't have the money to front that ahead of time. And also to get the money to then support other people in the community, <laughs> in that I was joking that the in my spreadsheet of how much money was on my side of that after expenses was the money that I could then go to, to go back other people's projects.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think I think that's a really really good trend to to point out there and I think it's I think thanks to you there's now this if everyone's listened to every episode of this so far you should have a good idea of what the sliding scale is for you in terms of art direction right if you if you have the funds to do so or if you have the I do not have it but if you have the kickstarter aptitude to make that make those dreams come true absolutely let it rip I think you'll be better off for it for sure but don't let a lack of art direction stop you from producing. I I don't think it's the end-all be-all when it comes to creation, for sure. At least speaking strictly to the game design industry.
2: And like you said, the public domain, creative commons, Mm -hmm. images can even take it that much further if you spend the time to find the right image to go with is, for example, Last Place, the cover of Last Place for on Earth is a public domain image. Because mm, mm. all the uh, all the photography in that game is historical photography, which, because it's a historical event, is old enough that it's actually out of copyright at this point. And it's brilliant. I
0: think it totally sets the tone for the whole book. And, you know, you didn't take these... I, I don't know if there's any photo editing that has happened here, but but it definitely see and you know uh, as a quick aside a little bit of photoshop ability will can certainly take you a long way i'm sure but it, it definitely sets the tone for for the last place on earth for sure
2: what are you working on what's going on buddy yeah yeah so at the time of recording this we're coming up in the coming months is february which has been ZineQuest quest time well at this point of time as of recording kickstarter has not announced that z quest 3 is happening officially there mm-hmm. have been rumors and screenshotted emails that show that it Mm -hmm. might be so i've been i have a project that i'm working on in preparation for going to kickstarter to make another zine and one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes nice dress
0: uh it's a it's a t-shirt
2: until you tried it on same goes for your health care this this starts with i've played a number of games just at the table where i get really interested in the idea of a time loop of Mm. we have the characters are going through time or we're going to jump back in time to do something and we're going to reset the time loop and one of my favorite shows in recent years is the show russian doll on oh my Netflix. god. Praise Russian doll. Praise Natasha Leon. Mwah. Chef's kiss. It's it's a, it's an excellent show. And so I'm I'm making a game that is a hack of Belonging Outside Belonging or the No Dice, No Master System by Avery Alder and Ben Rosenbaum. And I'm making that to play a game like Russian Doll. Mm-hmm. So you're going to be characters in a city. And you're going to play to figure out what's up with your characters and kind of what their issues and their are. And eventually, you're probably going to solve them and escape this time loop that keeps ending with you getting killed.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. And to me, as a, as a noob, as a noob designer, that sounds incredible incredibly difficult to me like it sounds like it's a, it's a challenge to sort of wrestle how to because i've played there's a board game called Time Stories which is pseudo like role play board game that does something mm-hmm. similar mm-hmm. is that you go back in time as time agents to close a time loop or a time anomaly or whatever have you
2: mm-hmm.
0: and you can get uh different scores based on how quickly or how well you circumvent the time event Mm. there's also roadblocks in that game where you have you, you have a certain amount of time energy temporal energy that allows you to stay there so you have like 20 turns essentially to figure out what's going on or you get kicked back to your future or whatever time period you're doing this from but have you ever played time stories before I have not that sounds quite interesting How's a how's a person who's making it? T- no, I'm just kidding. Don't don't ever do that to anyone. <laughs> don't do the you haven't seen this? Yes, because it it doesn't have to be commonplace. But I think it might be something <laughs> interesting to look at. They have a really cool continuity. So they have a ton of expansion packs. Like I've only played two, but I think there's like 13 mm-hmm. or 14 different expansion packs you can play off of the main game. One of them is that you go back to. Just so I don't spoil it, you go back to an insane asylum to find a time anomaly thing, and you're playing as inmates there, and they all have their own quirky abilities because of those things. (laughs) And then there is another one where you play Hollywood star wannabes, like actors, directors, Mm -hmm. writers, and you're trying to investigate a murder that happens, but it has a unique twist to it. I don't want to give too much away, but I think it'd be an interesting game to explore a sort of that time loop
2: scenario. Yeah, yeah. I think one of the things that's interesting about my project is that I've spent a lot of time, and this is still another game that I'm not coming up with wholesale because Mm -hmm. I've not found myself as a very mechanically inclined designer that I'm going to come up Mm -hmm. with my own fully original mechanics but I think that this game, I've been f- tinkering around with the ways the mechanics can change the experience at the table. Because mm-hmm. in my experience, having played Blowing anti Blowing games of Dreams Apart and J-Dragon Away, is that those games have a lot of investment at the beginning when you make your setting elements and you make your characters. And then when it comes to play, they're a lot more open. And they run the risk of kind of losing steam and figuring out where to go, and the cognitive load is surprisingly high for a GMless mm-hmm. game that has mm-hmm. no dice that you you still have to hold in your mind all of the moves that your play set, your playbook can make, and you have to move hold in mind your mind the moves that a selling element can make, and also there are multiple setting elements, and you could be any of them at any time. So there's a lot to think about, mm-hmm. and I've been thinking if I want this to be a tight one-shot experience of we you're going to, we're going to tell the story of a TV show. It's going to be the length of, I mean, Russian doll is 30 minutes long for eight episodes. Mm-hmm, so that's, mm-hmm. it's about a four hour experience to watch the entire thing that I want my game to be able to play out in that same amount of time. Mm-hmm. And so we want to reduce the cognitive load and also introduce mechanics that encourage people to play faster and make those Character driven choices sooner and reach the point of satisfying. I know what's going on with this character, and I know I need to go talk to that person that I've avoided talking to for eight years, or I need to leave my apartment so that, which is a thing that I haven't done in a long time, and that we can mess with the token economy. To build a system that encourages people to keep making these moves and keep pushing the story forward.
0: Hello, I'm back. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) What did I miss? TLDR hit me with it.
2: The TLDR is that tweaking with the mechanics to encourage people to play faster mm. and make character choices geared towards a one shot.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I played my first dream apart it was actually Sleep Away was the game that I played for the first time. I've I've never played a game like that before where it was solely prompt based. There's always been some sort of dice or card draw mechanic. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think I had a conversation with Benjamin Sperduto yesterday as of the taping of this, of those two episodes that we talked about one of his, one of his trend things that he pointed out was that what it, what is considered a rules light game and Mm. this, this, almost fallacy that happens that when if you don't have dice in your game it must be rules like or if there's no tactical combat board or something it must be a rules like game and that's not necessarily the case because when you think about a game like blades in the dark by no it's not a rules like game there are a ton of moving pieces that you have to keep in mind when you're playing that game and when i was playing sleep away that's something similar like not only are you keeping uh mind of the actions that are available to you, both as a playbook and a location, but you also have to keep in mind the narrative truths that you've applied to the scenario and that some of those things are derivative of your personal playbook. Like I played the, shoot, what are they called? The ropes keeper, ropes mm-hmm. p- climber, whatever the specific word on that was, but uh, one of their sticks was that they have some things to say about a location called the woods which is a part of the game
1: mm-hmm.
0: and for me that it, it's almost like playing a druid in D. like a druid is the most cognitively loaded class because you have to keep track <laughs> of all your spells what you want to trade out into but you also have to keep in mind your resources like your spell slots and your in your wild shapes and then on top of that you have to remember what you can wild shape into, and it is such a broad spectrum. Not even counting subclass things. So, like, I think when we talk about cognitive load here and creating a faster, f- faster, faster, snappier game, that the amount of rules can induce crunch just as much as to hit modifiers and test numbers and challenges or whatever have you so it's a good it's a good thing to point out and i think it's true of of sleep away or or at least that's my only experience with that style of system the no dice no masters style of system that it can still feel crunchy if there's if there's a lot going on and like you said like russian just like the last place on earth Russian Doll is still a very encapsulated story. It's a very specific, it's kind of a specific experience. And so I don't feel like, in a- in agreement with you, that you can't put a ton of mechanical breath in there because you're not, you may not get to use it all in any given one to two session style of play.
2: Absolutely. Yeah, I think one of the things I've really been focusing on, what are the parts that we can keep and how can we make it flow easier at the table. So one of the things that I've done with the setting elements is that in sleep or dreams apart or dreams askew, the setting elements rotate and are not static. Mm-hmm. But in my version, I was thinking, let's just make them static. All you have to worry mm-hmm. about is the sheet in front of you. You don't have to know what the per- person next to you has because they're going to deal with those things. And that just mm-hmm. a load off your mind and thinking about why don't we take those setting elements And specifically give them the powers that are typically associated with the game master or the person who's running the game. So Mm -hmm. in a a deliberate part of Sleepaway and of Wander Home and Dreams Apart and Dreams Askew is that pacing doesn't really matter. It's Mm -hmm. it's kind of a more laid back. We're going to freeform everything. But if we're trying to recreate a television show type experience, pacing does matter. Mm-hmm. So one of the setting elements is the loop and the person who holds the loop is responsible for pacing and they have special power. They have highlighted in bold a power that goes beyond normal table norms to be like, we're going to cut this scene here. I think you're done. We don't need to keep going down this road. And then hmm. giving, making those things clear that it doesn't mean that they need to cut every scene, but it means mm-hmm. that when things feel like they're dragging, there's someone at the table that we can turn to to make that call for us. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the loop, it- in addition that they're handling that pacing, but they also handle, they take notes about the repetitions. So when we're pacing something, they're the person who can say, well, on the second loop, this happened. So we're going to have a repeat reoccurring motif that calls that ooh. back. Ooh, ooh, yes. And really trying to spread that out of this is the people who handles all of the npcs that are kind of on the side of the pcs they're the home team they're rooting for you and when someone is really stuck and things look really bad they have the power to say well your friend shows up and they help you out because mm-hmm. that's how television happened. things happen mm-hmm. and they just happen and we need someone at the table who feels empowered to say this just happens even when no one is everyone's feeling cautious and don't want to interrupt the scene
0: yeah, exactly. It's that exact final note you're hitting on there like just today I had uh, a session of D&D with people and one of the one of the tough pieces of playing online especially with uh different connection speeds is that you don't really find a good segue into I would like to, you know, we've we've kind of kind of gone to a hand raise situation Mm -hmm. where we're all Mm -hmm. relative theater people. So we're able to pass the ball when we feel the energy is right or or kick the can if necessary. But for other people who may not be as privy to improbability, that it can be tough. It can be a struggle to be like we're done here or we're moving on or uh, I would like to add to the scene, right? There's always this worry of wanting to step on someone's moment. And I think when you present that, uh, not necessarily the the words of step on this moment, but there's someone with the power to interject and say, okay, I don't think that we're doing anything uh, productive here as far as narrative or uh, character development or anything have you let's cut here, a car hits you, let's move on. Exactly, exactly. Yeah,
2: yeah and uh. just playing with that system, the ways that we can split things up to make things easier, and then we can also kind of encourage people to play faster. That there was a really interesting conversation that I forget. I think I probably had it with in the Borgade group, which is a group led by will yopes of boston area game designers and in that group we were talking about how games change depending on how often you roll dice or how often you reach for the mechanical parts of the game mm-hmm. that if you play D D but roll dice only twice in a session it feels very different from a game where you roll dice every like when you roll dice 50 times or empowered mm-hmm. by the apocalypse if you are making moves left and right, the story speeds goes way, way faster. But if you mm-hmm. are taving long, luxurious 20 minute scenes and you make a single move, everything slows way down. Mm-hmm. And so part of what I'm doing with this game is thinking about how we can use the system to encourage pacing and speed. And that the looping mechanic is that in belonging outside belonging, no dice, to masters, you have weak moves that you do to get a token, which allow you to do strong moves, which kind of creates this incentive cycle of going. And Mm. that the ability to die and reset the loop is a weak move.
1: Whenever you Mm. do it,
2: you get a token and you can use it to do more strong moves and push the story forward. But the kicker is, is that when one person at the table does it, It happens to everyone at the table. The loop Mm -hmm. resets for everyone all together, and everyone gets a token, which means that what we've done is we've taken the regular kind of laid-back, relaxed storytelling of belonging outside belonging, and we've supercharged it. We've Mm -hmm. made this economy flow that much faster. You're going to get way more tokens than you would in a regular belonging outside Mm -hmm. belonging game, and that changes the way that people play. When they see their, their stack of, oh, I've got three or four tokens, I can go do crazy wild things with mm-hmm. my strong moves mm-hmm. now. And just the ways that we can tweak the mechanics just a little bit to change the play at the table is really interesting.
0: I think that's an amazing idea, at least for the experience that I've had with Sleepaway. Because I think there is this sense of casualness that can happen when it comes to, not casualness, but laid-backness, where it's like, okay, weak move. Because the the way the moves are written is that there's not a whole lot of stake involved when it comes to the weak moves, at least in my experience, for for the one game that I had. And a Mm -hmm. lot of the grip of the game comes from like normal slash strong moves. And I don't know if that's intentional by design by Jay or anything to that effect. Like I, like I know Jay personally, Jay dragon, but I think that it's really awesome that you said, okay, the only way, or one of the ways that we can, like you said, hypercharge this is to say, even though this person has the ability to end scenes, we now give everyone the ability to pull off really climactic moments in a small amount of time, because and I love that when you time loop, it ends for everyone because it reminds me of that scene in Russian doll where slight spoilers for Russian doll, but when they're in the elevator together and they meet for the first yes, time yes. and it's like, Oh, it's okay. I die all the time. You're like, wait, what? <laughs> and it's, and it's, I love that in the show, it's that they die in pairs all the time. Like, it's not like it's a one right after the other thing. And I, I, I think, I think you really nail it on the head when you instigate that sort of time loop slash economic buy sort of mechanic in there. I think, I think it's really powerful. It's a really good idea.
2: Yeah, that's, that's, that's what's got me really excited about in the, in the playtesting of this game and figure out like, oh, we, in a game that I was running, we had someone who was like, we just started, but what if I just died right away? And we just had, Mm -hmm. we had a loop that lasted maybe five minutes that we only said a couple things. And then someone just like reached for that button and pressed it. And we're back here at the beginning. And it changed the whole dynamic, but it also empowered everyone to go even further on the next one because they had even more tokens to make more strong moves and change the narrative going forward.
0: Interesting. That's really cool. That's really, really cool. Which also side note shows the power of potentially I mean, we've talked about this before in this show, you don't need play testers, but to have some other eyes playing your
2: game can be powerful. can certainly be powerful, open you up because you definitely have blind spots. Absolutely. I mean, I think the power of play testing is to is in the for me, is in the more perfecting the pieces of how they fit together, mm-hmm. in that I, I have this idea about turbocharging the action economy. What I need the playtesters for is helping make sure that the strong moves at the top are interesting enough that they still get mm-hmm. that they keep getting used mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I could turn to recharge the economy all I want but if the moves don't appeal to people because I can't write moves that if I write moves that appeal to me that I'm not everyone mm-hmm. so I need the moves to appeal to everyone and then it'll work but the mm. mechanical bones of it you can certainly build kind of by yourself and then go to fine tweak it later.
0: Absolutely. Definitely, definitely find that higher or strive for that higher polish for sure. I'm excited. I hope, I hope that Zine quest 2021, which I, I think someone's been like rumoring that it happens in, in like the beginning of March or something like that. Don't quote me on that. And I, I wish you all the success for that. What is, I guess real quick before we move into the other thing, is there anything you're currently struggling or wrestling with for the game that you're finding difficult to tackle in its in its conception?
2: Yeah, I think I think for me it's that part that I'm playtesting right now, is the tweaking the moves to hit exactly right. To like keep I want to keep all of the theming still in there and I want the moves to be short and evocative and hit really hard with an economy of words while still being the exact kind of thing that people reach for in there or they look at it on a page and say I want to do that Mm -hmm. and so it's really working with the economy of language and picking just the right words to make the game do exactly what I want in that a lot of my none of my work is very long I don't Mm -hmm. think that I'm ever going to write something that's longer than say 60 pages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And just that you can do a whole lot with not that much. Mm -hmm. And that picking just the right words to show exactly what you want of just the right example or just the right move that captures just the right feeling and spending more time editing and revising those words rather than just writing more can be really strong.
0: Mm -hmm. I also, I mean, I don't know if you're having this particular problem, but I can also see some of the troubles of writing multiple moves underneath a categorical hat like strong moves and then having four moves underneath that you also have to make sure or try to make sure that each move is interesting enough that one move isn't always being picked right like it's it's like one of the things in in spells with anD there There's so many of them <laughs> but maybe only like everyone wants to fireball yeah everyone wants to fireball everyone's using firebolt who the fuck uses the friends can trip after like <laughs> two sessions right like it's, it's the those... best
2: level to play a wizard is level three
0: that praise praise you heard it here everyone level three wizard no i totally believe in that i've definitely been the power gamer in 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 my life level three campaign great great here we go <laughs> yeah but I, I think that another interesting point to wrestle with that just that I'm sort of deconstructing is that you have to make all of the options feel I mean, they're probably not going to be all versatile, but mm-hmm. you have to make it so that one isn't so versatile that it trumps all other choices. And it's the one you always make because then does that create an interesting game after that? Absolutely.
2: Right? No, there's there's a lot of that going on. And it's it's both. Vertical like that within the playbook, and it also runs horizontal because while I'm not certainly nowhere near the level of J Dragon writing Wander Home, where there's 15 playbooks, I'm only writing four different playbooks. But across the playbooks, all of the moves have to craft different experiences mm-hmm. that are different mm-hmm. from the one next to it. That the artist interacts with the world in a different way than the misanthrope interacts with the world. Mm -hmm. And that trying to, the moves are the ways that the player interacts with the world. So we need to capture the theme of the playbook within the way, within those moves. And especially with it being a shorter game and kind of the purpose of the game is to playing to figure out what's going on with that character. There isn't a whole lot of character creation that goes into it. So a lot of how the player figures out what's going on with that character is by doing these moves and figuring out what happened. So by building the moves, we're building the character at the same time.
0: Hey Eli, it's our secondary... Lightning round time. I'm going to grab my box of dice here real quick. I'm going to move it next to the microphone for all the click clack goblins out there. I'm going to roll on this table I have in front of me. And uh, we're going to give a sort of TLDR design tip to the folks at home. Uh, This category could certainly be something we haven't talked about at all in terms Mm -hmm. of our episode today. And... You can use whatever level of experience you feel is necessary here. Take your time to marinate on it. And yeah, here we go. All right. Six, roll again. Two. Would you give some sort of tip to designers out there about community? Whatever Whatever that prompt speaks to you about for any veteran or new designers out there.
2: Hmm. That's really as that's, that's that's a tricky one. I think so in, in my mind where I'm at right now my mind immediately goes to the Brain Trust because that's <laughs> that's where we met Jeremy and that's where I've met a lot of other designers that I th- interact with on a semi-regular basis and that I certainly I haven't talked to them that I'm getting their work and I'm reading their work and I think that we live in the age of the internet, and that there's communities everywhere for everything. And that doesn't mean that they're all good, but it means that if you keep looking, you can find your niche and find the cool and interesting people that you want to interact with. And that you can, if you spend the time to look for it, it's probably there. And also a part of the. A part of community is also knowing, figuring out. Hmm. Maybe, maybe let me rewind this a little bit that mm-hmm. one of the interesting things about community is figuring out what you want from a community. In that, I think about a lot when I see that there's a designer that I follow on Twitter, Lucian Khan, who makes some excellent games. But one of the things that he posts on Twitter is, I am not your friend. I am a game designer and I make games and are, we do not have a, any kind of real relationship whatsoever. You have no reason to come in my, to my DMs and bother me about things. Mm-hmm. I'm just a weird da- game designer who makes weird games and you might like my games, but that doesn't mean that you know me and it doesn't mean that you know what I do. Mm-hmm. And I think that looking at that, I think this may, that makes so much sense I don't know if that's the person that I want to be, but seeing the person that Lucian knows that he wants to be and understanding himself makes for the grounds of, we don't have a friendship, but I consume his artistic work and think it's really interesting and cool. Mm -hmm. And that I think for community, you need to understand what you want out of the community and what your goals are in that community and trying to build it and also re-examining what's going on in the community and is this still a place that I want to be and if that answer is yes then that's the whole goal of the process you've reaffirmed your decision to be part of that community but if the answer is no then it's okay to step away and look for different people and I think especially in the time when it becomes increasingly important to think about people's behavior and people's politics and what's going on that that introspection is really important to understand what kind of community is this how do I want to interact with the community and then doing it and reappraising it and making that an ongoing conversation that's happening
0: hmm mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think it's true. I think for me, the brain trust community has been the first. I, I feel lucky. I feel very lucky that I was on Twitter at the right time. And Adam Vass said, hey, we've got a discord. If anyone wants to be a part of it, send me a DM and I'll send you a link. And I said, you know what? I need to I need to meet people out there. I need to get other experiences inside my noggin so that I can be a better designer. Otherwise I feel like I'm going to have a lot of trial by fire. It's going to frustrate me and make me quit. And that's just how, that's just how I operate. What I'm saying is that my goal is one partially self-serving. I won't deny that it's part of the ulterior motive of the podcast is to get to know people more intimately in the brain trust as well. And other designers that may not be a part of the brain trust, community in that I, I do want to potentially someday establish friendships with people. But mm-hmm. I think it's also important that, that not all communities are going to be a first place for intimate friendship. I think you have to build those things over a long period of time with certain people. I have very big anime school energy, so I'm welcome to be <laughs> friends with anybody. But I think it's a really good thing to point out that not everyone, A, a Thinks the same as you, and thus they don't want the same things. Even if you're a part of the same community, and then you also have to understand what the community is about. Is it a, is it a just strictly professional space where people are sharing ideas and then elaborating on those, or is it a space that's like, hey, let's all get together and play uh, Animal Crossing together or Super Smash or whatever have you? And and I think the brain trust has been equal parts of all of those things, and I'm very thankful for. You and all of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, I think
2: it's it's not as easy as this community is good or this community is bad. It's about mm-hmm. trying to figure out what is healthy for you and what mm-hmm. doesn't just leech your energy away or do the bad things that social media has been proven to do in many scientific studies at this point.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's definitely about being able to say, you know how is this how is this community to me in a relative manner right while while i say that the brain trust is amazing there could equally be someone who comes into the brain trust and decides like oh this actually isn't for me and that's okay i th- i think what's important to to about this tip is that that's okay if it doesn't serve what you're looking for and the it may be the other way around too it may be that you don't fit with the values and uh, intentions behind the established community because they're all going to be a little bit different. So yeah, I, I think, I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful tip, Eli. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Eli, I want to thank you so much for being here today. You've brought a lot to the table in a u- unique manner that no other guest has brought. So I'm glad that I think this is episode 12. <laughs> mm. We'll find out that I'm going to I'm going to lay in my coffin thinking that I misnumbered this episode. But <laughs> in 12 episodes, I still am finding very unique things between each and every designer and you by no stretch of the uh, imagination have been any weaker in comparison. So not it. There should be a strong and a weak guest. I don't mean that for any previous guests. I have loved each and every one of you. My point is, is that you've been great. You've been Thank great you. and you've been it's intelligent. It's been a pleasure
2: chatting with you.
0: And just for the folks at home, where can they find and talk with you, talk about you, find your games? Many of these things, many of these links will be in the show notes down
2: below. Absolutely. You can find me on Twitter at Eli underscore sites, or maybe it's sites underscore Eli. I forget sites is spelled S E I T Z. You can also find me on itch.io. You can get my work, like the work that I've talked about in this podcast, like Last Place and One Email and my very creepy murder ballad game about two sisters that probably drown each other and then the other one dies. It's great. But you can find that also on itch.io at my name, Eli underscore sites. And if you play any of those games, tweet at me because I'd love to hear about them. And Coming to you 2021 at some point, maybe for Zinequest if it happens, maybe not. Will be my <laughs> Russian doll game using Belong Outside Belong that I think does a lot of really cool things. So check it out.
0: I would. I'm going to speak this into the into the ether now. If this game comes to fruition, I will do everything within my power to get Natasha Leone to do a Let's Play <laughs> of this game. Oh I God, think God, that that'd would be, be amazing. The whole cast, I would cry. That would be so <laughs> good. That would
2: be my dream.
0: But yes, see everyone in 2021. Uh, I think this will be out like the end of January. So that today is New Year's Day as of the taping of this episode. So, happy New Year everybody. I wish you all the luck. Eli, I wish you all the luck with your future endeavors. Everyone, have a beautiful day. Say bye to the people, Eli. Happy New Year everyone. Happy New
2: Year!
0: Alright, that's a wrap. I love the intimacy that Eli brings to his games, and I am fucking excited for his Russian doll love letter, Thursday. Eli, you have a knack for this. Keep chugging away. All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Eli, along with the link to the Kickstarter for Thursday, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you liked the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way over on kofi.com or itch.io. Also, if you are unable to donate, please consider sharing this with the person you thought of while listening to this episode and leave a review. Both of those methods greatly impact the success of this show and let me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me, at JeremyGage5, over on Twitter with the hashtag IDidIt. That's I-D-Y-D-I-T.